The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists. Tether, get smart, get tethered. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So interesting one today, right? We are sort of international and at home all at the same time, right? Because Absolutely. we have a native French speaker on who's not going to be speaking French. It'll be glad to know because I don't speak French. That would make for a very horrible interview. <laughs> <laughs> Although studying five years of French at school with an English boy, yeah. That's how the English roll. We study French for five years and don't pick anything up. Yeah. Up, well, right? Same here, yeah. <laughs> well, so anyway, interesting subject here, right? So let's get into it. Yeah. So I first ran into our guest today at an industry training course where we were both students with her years of experience and her master's degree in building science and sustainable design. She was definitely one of the most qualified people in the room, probably teaching the course instead of being a student. But it was great to finally meet her. Here we are today. So welcome to the show, Emily Karen. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah. Listen, you uh, founded EcoSynergy in uh, 2009 to uh, promote energy efficiency across the country, really, and because you've been working in many provinces. But more importantly, to influence, and I, I was really actually inspired by this, more importantly, to influence and inspire current generations to create a sustainable built environment for themselves and future generations. That's a big thing to take on, and so we're glad to have you here to talk about it. So tell us your origin story. How did you get to where you are, and why is that so important to you? Well, you know, I thought about that question for many, many days. And really, it was kind of just uh, circumstantial. When I graduated in 2001, I was a city inspector for a city. And I really liked that scope of work, being on site. And I already had some background in, in the old R2000 program. And I figured, oh, I should really stick to that. So I took what we had at the time, and you two will relate, the Yellow Pages book. Right? <laughs> the Yellow Pages book, and I went to find home inspectors. And so I went down the list, and I found this dude in Quebec, and he was my first mentor, and then I just drank the Kool-Aid. And the thing about building science, which in those years, it always existed, but I think now it's scope that is more refined. People know a little bit more what that means, is we have buildings that are really, really old. And, you know, in two years of diagnosis, I had the opportunity to troubleshoot houses that were built. My oldest house was 1789. Wow. So, I mean, when you start looking in history and... I was was only three years old at that time. (laughs) (laughs) You look really good, Robert. I mean, you got to give me what you're taking because... I'll take some of that. (laughs) I'll take some of that. Yeah. But I mean, it was really, really cool. And then that's where I drank the Kool-Aid is, you know, when you look at 
how they were built, what they use for insulation. Like I found some baby's clothing from the early 1930s that we took out of the wall and just happened that the family had a young child. And so they asked the baby because it was fine, right? Because those houses were not efficient whatsoever. So everything in them stayed intact. So other than dust, you know, and I found some old um, gazette printing sheets, you know, they were acting as a vapor retarder and, you know, and that's when I really started thinking, wow, you know, this is really, really cool. And then I, I migrated to, to new construction and I thought, wow, you know, why we have all these technologies and, and how can we make it better? And, and then you get into all the, the questions that people ask, oh, my house does this, I'm not comfortable there. And we're humans, right? So we thrive on negativity. It's way easier than to thrive on positivity. So, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I was hearing all these things and I said, okay, well, we're spending all this money and all we do is kick and scream about it. So maybe there's something to be looked at. So I fell into it and I opened up because honest, I had a, uh, a huge argument with one of my first bosses at the city in, in Quebec. In the end, he basically told me, he says, Em, you're, you're never going to be happy until you run your own ship. And I said, well, I don't want to run a company. I just want you to understand what you're trying to hire and what you're asking of that hired person. And they're not in sync. So that was my point. And then fair enough, three years later, I was in Alberta at the time. So I moved from Quebec to Alberta in 07. In 09, I opened EcoSynergy for all those reasons. And I mean, I don't know. I think my quest is more an entrepreneurial quest. I just love business and I fell in the science of it just because I like to know how things work. So I don't know that there's a origin. I just, I just love knowing how things work. <laughs> Evolution, not an origin. So for people who aren't familiar with how the patchwork of Canada. So when I first moved to Canada, I was under the assumption it was one country. And I moved here in 2013. Oh, how wrong I was. This is like 10 countries loosely knitted together with some really bad sewing. So just for context, <laughs> you move from Quebec, which is very French, very European. It's got this really defined culture. And you went to effectively Canada's version of Texas. So yes, I did. Why, why Alberta? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, there's a funny story. <laughs> so for somebody to move, pack up and leave, okay, so this decision took place in three weeks in my head in Quebec. I was stuck in traffic on Champlain Bridge. And for people that have been to Montreal before the new bridge, it's a pain. And I had it. And I had my friend with me and I told her, mark my words, not three weeks, wait, three months. I said, from this day forward, three months from now, I'm out of here. I'm done with the shithole. <laughs> so... Three months later, fair enough, you know, I subleased my rent. I had a little dinky apartment, you know, whatever. And love life sucked. Nobody wants to be with somebody like me, quote unquote, right? <laughs> I, I'm way too wild or, you know, I'm not a housewife kind of stereotype. So even over there, I was, you know, everything kind of went down the drain. I thought there was more to life than that. And so... A month before departure, I started calling my friends and said, hey, you know, we need to get together because I'm leaving. And they're all, well, where are you going? I was like, I told you two months ago, I'm leaving this place. I'm going to Alberta. And they're like, really? You were serious? I mean, never doubt, Miss Carlman. Don't doubt me because you're going to fall off your chair every time. <laughs> so there I went, packed my trailer, and I was scared. And I guess I drove across the country and I thought about Calgary. But then I had to remember why I left Montreal. 
mainly for health issues. So I thought that Calgary was like Montreal at the time. I know that it isn't anymore, but I thought that the pace of life and go, go, go and work, work, work was Calgary. So I decided to go towards Edmonton because I thought it was more like Quebec City, a little bit more laid back. And I mean, the only reason why I didn't go further west, because I mean, hey, Vancouver is very appealing, is I had never seen the mountains and I was too much of a coward to drive through them. So I stopped before them. <laughs> so I landed in Edmonton. That's a good story. So my takeaway from that is you solved for maximum freedom and opportunity, right? You left a very sort of structured socialistic place, for want of a better word. I don't mean that derogatory. That's just how I would summarize the culture. And you went to effectively Canada's Texas, where it's a bit more yeehaw, off you go, get on with it, and uh, let me know how it works out. Well, I was looking for a blank slate. Yeah. I was looking for a new beginning. I thought it was just too much to try to tackle everything that was going on over there rather than just start fresh. I didn't have a company at the time. I didn't know the, what you just described. I didn't know that Alberta was a land of opportunity. I, yeah. I came in, I found a job, and my first job was a safety officer for a roofing company. <laughs> How does that work out? Did you, did you go around shouting... Don't fall off the roof. Is that your job? <laughs> no. Well, being a woman on a construction site is, but being a safety officer, a female yeah. safety officer, is a whole other level. Like the guys were more concerned about if I had a ring on my finger than taking <laughs> me seriously, right? Yeah. So oh, I actually well, had to shut them up, and I went to the dollar store and got a fake ring so they would actually shut up. <laughs> That's hilarious. We actually want to talk about that later because there's, yeah. you know. Adam and I have interviewed some really strong, influential, inspiring women on the podcast, and there's a story to tell, and, we're, and we want to hear that one for sure from you. A little bit of a backstep, and that is, is that you mentioned the word R2000, because we speak to an international audience. Oh, yes. Yeah. Just, yeah, do you want to just quickly maybe tell everybody what R2000 was all about, and a little bit about the history of that, because it was sort of our darling program for you know many years, but it's... Not now, right? So R2000 was one of the first energy efficiency programs of the Canadian federal government. It's a nationwide program that builders or homeowners could participate in. And it was kind of one of the first tries to high performance. So houses that would, you know, the goal was to make them, you know, more energy efficient, more durable, air quality, right? It was kind of the one of the first stabs at all this. I can't remember the years that it started. I think it started in the mid-90s or something. No, it was earlier than that because I remember... Oh, there you go. I got out of school in 1983, and at that time, uh, Joe Stebrick was... Dr. Stebrick was working for NRC or NRCAN. I can't remember one of the two. And then that was one of his, you know, projects. And, and I remember, you know, like the conservation house in Regina... We studied that in our school. That was before R2000. Yeah, well, it was the, yeah, the beginnings of it, right? Yeah, so yeah. That, that's right. That, absolutely, yeah. So we've actually had an interesting evolution in Canada in high-performance housing. Mm-hmm. But what the world needs to also understand, and Emily, you remember this, is that we had a federal government change uh, a few years ago, and our inventory of research was really, really good for many years, like almost 25 years. We were doing awesome research work. Of course, you probably studied a lot of it through CMHC, NRCAN, NRC, a federal government change. And then all of a sudden, boom, it was gone. 
You know, they locked it down. They weren't given any more money. Uh, yeah. A lot of researchers, you know, were basically lost. I remember running into a couple of Canadian researchers from NRC who at a conference down in Florida, they had to pay their own way, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like for 20, 25 years, we were doing outstanding research. People, people all over the world thought we were the best in, at housing research, right? And then all of a sudden, gone. Now, that being said, Robert, I wasn't born in 1792, so I don't remember all the details. Uh, I was quite a bit younger at the time. So you're filling in the history blank here. Yeah, yeah that comes with the gray hair. So <laughs> I pay for mine. <laughs> Be patient. It'll, it'll come. You don't have to save money. <laughs> So the R2000 and then, but you also did a lot of work with Eco Energy program. They're, they're tied into one another. Right. Okay. We're going to go through a little bit of terms here. So R2000 is a federal, still is, not as much as it used to. It's a federal energy performance program. Energide, which is the same sticker that you see on all your appliances, and they have Energide for cars too. So if you shop for fuel efficiency cars, you can actually find, you know, weight versus engine, you have it for cars too. It's a labeling program that kind of, it's a statement-ish of what your energy usage would be, an estimate. It's not a guarantee, it's a statement, okay? So you can have labels that don't look so good. Energide is the backbone of many of the different programs that exist today, which lead uses Energide, Green uses Energide, a lot of other programs that would run on subsidies. So CMHC subsidies, the Canadian Housing and Mortgage Corporation subsidies, they have an Energide scope. So Energide is like the national benchmarking program for energy efficiency. Ecoenergy is another federal program, but that's a financial incentives program. And Ecoenergy was built on the backbone of Energide as well. So if you had an Energide of whatever, Ecoenergy would give you whatever amount of money. So in 2010 is when 2009, 10, 11 is when that was going really, really strong. It was also in the same time as the first Equilibrium Net Zero pilot project in Canada. So So it was the first stab at Net Zero Energy. Okay. And Equilibrium, that is a program that still exists. Is that correct? I don't think so. It was a pilot project. And I don't remember how many houses in Canada were built through that pilot. Okay. 14 comes to mind, but I'm not sure. There was a few, one or two per province kind of thing. And they just wanted to see what, you know, so this was a funded program. Not all of it, but we got some funding and we took our first stabs at what Net Zero Energy could look like. Yeah. It's interesting hearing this history because, you know, I've been in Canada a long time now and I'm Canadian, plastic as I may be, right? But it's interesting hearing that history because, you know, we're talking about residential housing here and one of the problems with residential housing is people think it's an investment. It's not, by the way, but that's a subject for another day, right? And it's confusing, right? Because for me or any of us on this Zoom buying a house we would know what we're looking at but most people don't so then they get this menu of confusing like this program that program this thing that thing yeah as someone who's a bit of a free market boy coming in from the outside i was personally confused as to someone who works in this business 
And I'm a big believer in get rid of all these programs and just put the cost of energy up. Let the market solve this problem, right? Yeah. Right? That's the answer. Take all that money you were giving to fire everybody, sorry, if you work in these programs, right? And then just put the price of energy up every year. You say for every three years or five years, the cost of energy is going up and it's tax, let's be fair, right? But it's a user tax and that way you influence user behavior, right? So if it costs me every five years, I know the cost to heat my home and run my home is going to go up exponentially against inflation. I then have to take measures to deal with that, right? And then the market solutions arrive to present that. Now, that's a free market worldview, clearly, right? But we saw that in Alberta in 2014, yeah. was it, yeah. that the natural gas went up to like $14 a gigaton? Yeah. And this is the problem in Canada yeah. where everyone relies on cars and there's still a lot of propane and oil heating going on. You get the pitchforks out and the peasants revolting very quick when you start putting energy costs up, right? And that's the problem. There's a question here in my long-winded thing here. So net zero energy, right? This is going to be the new program. There's going to be this, net zero that, net zero this, right? So why can't, I mean, I guess this would be a provincial, province by province thing or state by state thing. Why can't someone say, Governor Alberta, say, right, if you get your house to net zero, verified, using someone like you to verify that, or you build to that, you get property tax at 50% off for 10 years. That's how you affect change. Mm-hmm. Make the incentive, and you don't push the change, you let the change evolve through an incentive, right? I guess I have a different take on incentives. Yeah. I think if incentives are well-managed and they are rolled out properly, you'll get that kind of shift. Yeah. On the flip side, I find that if, a service or something is subsidized, it takes the value out of it. Yes. So let me explain. So in the retrofit market, okay, if there's a market that could really use guidance on how to make their houses better, no matter what that looks like, okay, older houses, 70s and older, they see no value unless it's incentivized to hire a team like cars or other groups to do the analysis and tell them where they should be putting their budget considering of their goals. Right. Right. Nobody wants to pay for that. But don't you think that paying maybe, I don't know, I'm just throwing out a thousand bucks and you have 25 grand to throw on a renovation. Isn't that good spent money? No, because there's no marble countertop in that budget. But it was also a program, the retrofit market always, a lot of time has been, you know, subsidized. So, like, don't get me wrong, I would do what I do for free just because I'm a nerd like that and I love talking about this stuff. But ultimately, if I don't charge, people attach value to a dollar sign. Unfortunately. So, yes, subsidies but carefully. It can only be something that'll push off the cliff. It can't be something that'll give them a parachute. You have hit on something that most yeah. engineers don't get, right? I'm not price, an engineer, by the way. Yeah, I know. Price is a signal, right? <laughs> price is <laughs> a signal. Yep. So price if you sign it away for free, the signal you're sending is it has no value. It probably has value, but that is the signal received. 
Mm-hmm. Does it cost 150 grand to make a Porsche? No, it probably costs the same as it costs to make a Ford Explorer. But the signal Porsche put out there is exclusivity, high value. It becomes a virtue signal or a status signal, right? This is my problem with engineers. I know one of the probably top five building services engineers in the world. So if this person was a top five lawyer or surgeon, they would be earning a million dollars a year plus. Our society values a top five building services engineer at less than 200000 a year. And that sucks. And that's why housing sucks and buildings suck, right? Because as a society, we don't value it. It's a commodity. Yeah, it's been commoditized. We've got to step out of that value trap and say, right, you want a great house and there's a great, it's going to cost you but you're going to be happy to pay that because you're going to get something great at the end of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why the biggest quest out there, and that's what we're working on, it's been a, at least a year full-time that we're mulling all this over, yeah. is how do we make sustainability, energy efficiency, comfort sexy? Yeah. How do we make that a want? Because, yeah. gentlemen... I'm a woman and I can say this. When a woman gets a want in her head, she gets it. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> She'll figure it out. She'll yeah. sell some old stuff to get that pair of $500 shoes. <laughs> so I yeah. think there's just two ways around this. It's either we find a way to make better construction a want, which I think is pretty challenging, or they buy it and they don't know they're getting it. Yeah. Mm. So it's One embedded, the, right? It's, it's embedded. Yeah. So instead of selling them on an HRV, you sell them on mirrors not fogging up. Yeah. yeah. This goes back to my whole concept of Teslas. And I love Teslas, but they are a virtue signaling thing, right? A Tesla is a Porsche. If a dude like me drives a, a Porsche, it's my, my wife calls it my, excuse me, penis car. That's my midlife, raging midlife <laughs> crisis car. I don't but know. Porsches it's are a, a signal, little... right? It's a status signal, right? If you have an Apple phone, that's a status signal. If you live in this big rolling house, that's a status signal. If you drive a, I would argue, if you drive a Tesla, that is a status signal. But it's Mm. also a virtue signal, right? Now. I guess it depends on who, because I'm a Tesla driver and I don't know. No, but you don't see yourself. I feel that it's that way. I do it because I walk my talk. Yes, but. People look at you. Yeah. So if someone saw you oh, driving down yeah, the road, yeah, yeah, yeah. they would go, oh, they've obviously got some money, right? Now. Look at her. Uh, where does she think she is? Now, and it's, yeah. this is a trick. Tesla have pulled off what we just said. Mm-hmm. They're making no excuse for the cost of that car. Nope. You want that car? Pay your money. Off you go, right? Mm-hmm. That's the trick you've got to pull off. So, I mean, yeah. maybe you need to be a lunatic like Elon Musk. I don't know. <laughs> they, they were able to create a lot of value. Yeah. yeah. But going back to your comments, you know, like I, when we were practicing, you know, most of our clients, like 90% of our clients were other engineers. And then there was 8% of them were physicians, they're healthcare workers from whatever. They were ophthalmologists, they were MDs, they were surgeons. And then the other 2% were just really well researched individuals. And, and we've talked about this before, you know, the market suggests that, you know, the housing industry suggests. The mechanical systems, for example, should represent between 3 and 5% of the construction costs. None of the systems that we ever did for any of our clients were under 10%. They were always between, say, 12 and 50% of construction costs, you know? And it's because they were looking for something other than just the commodity. You know, these people were well-researched, educated, informed. 
lots of them were building sort of their retirement home or the family home. And when they got through our filtering system, which was all based on IEQ, by the way, it was not, energy was never our story. Never. Not one. We never sold one engineering project based on energy. It was all on IEQ, you mm-hmm. know? But the outcome, the energy efficiency and energy conservation was an outcome of getting really good indoor environments. That was the story. Yeah. And, and it worked. And so I don't know how we scale something like that up because I know based on my successes that we had, it's a great strategy. And you know what? For both of you, you know, one of the things for me that's been really rewarding is looking back at this pandemic that we're in. You know, some people will be listening to this at some time in the future. We're in a pandemic. Everybody's shut down. Everybody's indoors. Do a mental count of the inventory of buildings that we've designed. All of them, the people are living in great environments. All of them, mm-hmm. you know? That wasn't by design that we were building systems for a pandemic. We were building systems for people. Yeah. And now they're getting the benefit during this terrible time that we're in. Yeah. I think that all the high-performance buildings, houses that we've worked on, I would be ready to make the same statement. But I mean, the question I would have for you about the ones that spent the money on IAQ, were they her first-time home buyers? No, 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 no. So no, no. what I'm getting at is your customers had bad house relationships or different house. They had a database yeah. knowing what they did not want right. to have. And so now they saw the value in what you were offering, right? So Darren and I, Darren's my husband, we laugh a little sometimes because it seems like a lot of folks out there always have a start of marriage. <laughs> and then after that, they get a real marriage. Because they tried it and it didn't quite work out and then they try it again and then it works, right? Uh, Some people just are never-ending marrying type. Some people never get married. But I feel it's the same. It's all a human conversation. I find that we're a very reactive species. We're not very proactive about things. The ones that are, we're seen a little bit as la-la, you know, what are you talking about? about (laughs) (laughs) and we learn by trial and error. So, okay, I had cold feet in my kitchen, so I'm not going to have a cantilever there anymore because that's where I spend my time, right? Kind of thing. They remember the things that they didn't like or they they don't even know, (laughs) right? But you think that after three or four houses, they would, you know... I'm getting up there. I don't want my joints to hurt. I like my moisture in my house because I'm sick and tired of coughing. My nose bleed. My eyes are itchy. And, you know, I want my hardwood. I don't want that plastic stuff. So let's go do it right now. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. Robert, I have questions. Why aren't our buildings more like cars? Shouldn't our buildings warn us if something is wrong could impact our health and safety? Why can't our buildings tell us how efficiently they're working? Why, 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 why? <laughs> well, they fit, Adam, and they can, you know? Our philosophy is designed for people, good buildings follow. This whole indoor environmental quality thing is becoming a real important all around the world. Well, 
Tether have developed a mobile access property identity engine. And that enables landlords and property managers to monitor indoor environmental quality metrics plus energy consumption. It's all about making better decisions based on real world information. Get smart, get tethered. For more information, go to tether.co.nz. And you can also hear from Tether CEO Brandon Van Blurk on our June 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast. And now back to the show. So taking the Tesla as an example. So someone said to me, a net zero house is a, is a Tesla with bricks, right? It's a virtue signal. But why is there no market for the Tesla houses? So there should be, I hate the word should because I should be a billionaire and I'm not. It's a useless word, but there should be, <laughs> right? A market for housing and people who want that housing that is energy efficient, IAQ, meets all your IAQ, meets all the health and well-being issues, right? Ticks all them boxes and can still look fabulous, can still be high-end, can still be high-finish. That market does not seem to exist. It's normally an eccentric architect who's cashed out, sold his firm, and done that, right? (laughs) Who else does that, apart from lunatics like us? (laughs) And that's what I was saying earlier. You know, I think we have to start selling high-performance houses the same way we sell high-performance cars. Yes. Because the thing is... I've never sold cars, but I would be ready to bet that as soon as you can get the person behind that wheel for a test drive, they're sold. Yeah. Because now they're going to feel it. They're going to interact with it. They're going to use the brakes, right? They're going to shift. There's a huge emotional connection. Yeah. Right? And a high-performance house is not a lot of stuff that you can kind of play with. Maybe opening your windows. That's one of the problems, right? right? One of the problems they're not moving is, parts. They're not cool. Yeah. Some people that lived in the, in the highly insulated walls, right? They, you know, you can put pillows. Them putting the pillows down is what makes them happy. It's not yeah. the wall that's that thick. They have a cute little sitting place now. Mm. That's what sells them. Yeah. It's not that they're going to be more comfortable because they don't know what that means. They think they do. Yeah, so there's so an education adapt, component, right? Yeah, we yeah. just adapt. Yeah. yeah. Well, you said something earlier on, and that, and it was you know in terms of negativity versus positivity. You know, people focus on the negative, and when we think about comfort, for example, thermal comfort. When we were working with clients pre-design stage, we would say like, sit in your house, in the middle of the room, every room, you know, and close your eyes and write down the things that you don't like. Yeah, I get them to do the same exercise. Yeah, right? And so it's not about what you like. It's what you don't yes. like. Yes, and, and and it's Yeah, and it's removing the shit that you don't want to have in your next house, which is really important. And in many ways, it's kind of like an art philosophy. I remember talking to, I was up in the Pacific Northwest, and we were doing a, a tour of an old Haida Gwaii burial site. It was quite moving, actually, to be there. And we were talking about the carvings and the individual was saying, you know, the people do these carvings, the form of the totem pole was always there. All they did was remove that which didn't belong. And that's what, when you build really good buildings, you're trying to remove that what doesn't belong. And you don't, what doesn't belong is annoying sounds, bad smells, you know, thermal discomfort, all that kinds of stuff. That doesn't belong in someone's home and you have to remove it, not add 
good stuff. You get rid of the bad stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't belong in your right. But if you look at the entire building stock that's out there since day one, <laughs> it's been in every house. So that's yeah. the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, that's is... fine. I know my top floor gets 40 degrees more than my basement. That's okay. All the houses do that. Yeah, yeah. 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 And when it's cheap to heat and cool that place like it is in North America, then it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think the fundamental problem is the difference between a car and a house is everyone knows a car is a wasting asset. It's a uh, comestible, right? Mm-hmm. A house is the same, but people don't see it that way. They're well, that's, what they, that's not what they tell you at the bank, right? Yeah. It's not I own a house. Do you have an asset? I own a house. Yeah. No. I mean, that fantasy might go away in the next housing crisis, but <laughs> we've got to find a way to sell the benefits of a properly designed, energy-efficient, designed for comfort and well-being house, right? That has to be a selling point. I can't think of any commercial developer who sells that. Again, I just think we have to find a way to make it emotional. Yeah, you've got you to tap in. I mean, there's an it educational component to that. It has to be fun and sexy again. It has to be, you know what? Renewables sell quite easily, yeah. right? If you put a solar array on somebody's roof, they will have barbecues to show off their solar array. <laughs> Do you know what's even crazier is if you ask people, do you like having your humidity level at the correct thing? Do you like being comfortable? Do you like no noise, no vibration? Do you like no energy? They'd say yes to all of that. Yeah, absolutely. They do. And then if you say, would you be willing to buy a house with that for this price? They go, what? Get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a priority. And I mean, no. I think that because Humans are one of the, as far as I know, only species on the planet that adapt the environment to them rather than them adapting to the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And because we have that capacity, we know that we can fix it or placebo goes a long way. Right. As soon as we have a belief that we change something, we're good. It doesn't oh, yeah. have to be real, but we're good. Brain, man. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. if you tell them that there's an extra cost, then they're going to say, oh, no, I'll work around it. And they will. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah. is the argument for building code in a way, right? So, you know, everyone's all over the show. Everyone's drinking Kool-Aid of various flavors. So one answer is, this is coming from the libertarian, that you have to adjust the building code to incorporate a lot of this stuff. Then it becomes the minimum design level, right? So that's the argument for yeah. building code. The problem is the building code is a political football. You know, you start off with a horse and you wind up with a 500 camel. That's the problem with the building code, right? <laughs> well, there's that. And there's also that we have four main climate zones in our country. Yes. And yeah. the national code addresses all of them equally. That's why the provinces, Ontario, Quebec, BC, and probably some in the Maritimes, also have their own provincial codes that are supposed to supersede the national one because so now they've adapted the code to their climate. Isn't this the argument for performance-based building code that sort of then the performance is the target and that naturally deals with the difference in climate zones, right? Yes, but take energy out. Like yeah. Don't even think energy. Structural, water management, rain screens, topography, ground, soil conditions, right? right. So. All these things, fire propagation, right? All these things at the national level, like they're 
all kind of equal. And then as you get into the different provinces, those things should be revised a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And that's why BC has a code because, I mean, a big part of their building code is seismic because they're on the fail. Yeah. We don't have earthquakes in Alberta. Well, that's the same thing. I mean, you get down to the lower mainland. I mean, the water table is like right there, right? Yeah. Well, that's completely different than when you're in the middle of the prairies where the water table is like 100 feet down, right? So you can't have the same building requirements yeah. in Vancouver as you do, you know, wherever. Take a and, rose and that's where, you know, that's where the national code is, you know, bare bone minimum. And I know, <laughs> you want another funny story? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> about uh, it has to be about ten years ago. I was in Edmonton talking with a builder. He said, "Yeah, the building code, like that's a guideline, right?" <laughs> I said, "Excuse me." He said, "Well, you don't really have to do it. It's a guideline." I'm like, it's a no, suggestion. It's an idea. <laughs> it's legal. You can get sued for this. You don't have one in your. Oh no, we don't. We've never looked at the building code, and your building has. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> That sums up the whole residential food industry. stigma, right? I mean, they rely on their trades. The trades know their codes, but then they're all in silos. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that was a big difference. I mean, moving from Quebec where the building goes on the construction site and everybody's ordered in and and multiple trades multitasking at once on site. And here it's one at a time. Yeah. Yeah. A long time to build the house here. (laughs) It's called the Wild West out there for a reason, right? Yeah, true. The notice in the time, Emily, and I know you're on a huge tight schedule here. Earlier on, you know, we started to talk about women in the industry and your story. And I want to talk about that because, you know, you're a, not only from a technical point of view, but also your business acumen and talk to us about that. I mean, I was looking through my website, but we started the website in 2004, and I think it was in 2008 I was reading documents about the influence that women have in architecture and engineering and how they make better decisions than men do. And yet, for some reason, we've just not been able to get the gender into our industry like other, like the healthcare professional is populated with a lot of, obviously, a lot of females, a lot of the other sciences too, but why can we not get women into the industry what's going on there my honest and that's just my perception i don't know if it's true i love inspiring people i love inspiring women in wanting to go for what they want their dreams and honestly i think they just don't believe they can do it why is that i just i just think it's well you know it hasn't been many generations that women are more equal to men. Like if you look in the history of humanity, it's still pretty recent, right? And there's still this stigma that we are a caregiver by nature. You know, we're not, not we're not an executor, right? We're we're there to care. Like we have the soft spot, right? And, And in a household, it's still like that very much today. And it's not something that's bad or wrong or anything, but, that's kind of how we're still brought up. And that's why the healthcare system is flooded with women. You would ask the same question to men in the healthcare and they might feel a little uncomfortable answering why they don't want to get in. 
Mm. That's true. Actually, if you look at healthcare and education to some degree, right, it's predominantly female. It really is a self-belief. And then the other thing, too, is because we're the ones giving birth, let's face it, you know, I made the choice to not have children. Because as I don't do things halfway, when I'm doing something, I'm all in. I did not want to get in a situation where I would have to pick between my duties as a mother and running a company. I didn't want to make that choice. And I don't think that's fair to make that choice when you do have kids. So I chose to not have children. So I did not have the ties. And not that they're wrong, because you know what? I hats off to any mother out there that's because that is in my book the hardest job out there yeah. <laughs> as a stepmother and a career as well that's super I, tough. oh yeah, yeah i wouldn't yeah. running a company is way easier than raising kids buy them up <laughs> yeah <laughs> true oh, that. no problem no question <laughs> right but yeah. i think that's also part of it you know when a lot of women want to have children and maybe they feel they can't do both to do both successfully that's yeah. a lot yeah. Agreed. I've got two daughters. One of them is in STEM. She's a mechanical engineer. But she always wanted to do that, even from a young age, right? So, but seeing her go through university was fascinating for me because of like the, she was certainly in a minority, right? She was competing with boys, basically, and men. You know, and she will be all her life. And luckily, she's got a lot of my Genghis Khan genes going on there, right? So she doesn't let it get her down. You know what I mean? yeah. The reason men are successful I think it's because they're delusional, aggressive, and assholes, mostly. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't. <laughs> I don't know. I think there is. There's a, there's a level of delusion you need to be really successful, right? There's a level of aggression you need to push through stuff. And I guess that isn't natural. I think it depends like, at what speed you want to go. Yeah. And at what That's cost true. you want to do it. Yeah, I guess, yeah, how much scorched earth you want around you, right, to some degree. Because, yeah. Adam, if you think that women in the workplace or in business are just colorful flowers, no. sorry to break it to you. I have a working theory that women are, are way more ruthless than men, <laughs> right? Way more ruthless when push comes to shove, right? But it's the belief of that. The belief yeah. in pushing through the obstacles, you know? You have to be cut out. Yeah. I think that going into a market that you will be a minority, yeah. you have to be aware of that. Yes. And you've got to you go in. You have to go in with open eyes and yeah. say, okay, am I willing or ready to work harder? Yeah. To prove yeah. myself over and over again? To push the status quo a little bit? Am I willing or able to take that on? And I think that could be subconsciously one of the reasons why maybe some women don't go down that route. Maybe they choose a battle. I always remember Margaret Thatcher because I'm old, right? So I'm a child of Thatcher, the me generation. And uh, she never really played the female card, but there was a really good interview with her towards the end of her term as prime minister. And they said to her, what was it like, you know, because she came up in the 70s where <laughs> it was freaking rough. Mm. The interview said, so what was it like being a woman holding these high-powered jobs? She said, the truth is you have to be twice or three times better than the men around. Right? So that is a filtering system on its own. And to her credit, she was. I mean, she dominated politics in the UK for 10 years, right? 
and the and men the around her world, just could not you have to do her. that for less money yeah. yeah so it's doable right it is it's but it's not about it can't be about pride no you got purpose will it. drive you yeah, and you've got to push through it, I guess, right? You have to have something that'll push you through all those hurdles. It can't be it can't be a money thing and it can't be a pride thing. It has to be a purpose thing. This as is far what, as I'm concerned, anyways. Yeah, and that's you know, when I go yeah. go back to your statement that you have, you know, in terms of inspiring generations, that's when I started the present when we introduced you. That was one of the things that really you know impressed me. Because you have this vision of what you want to do and and how you can influence future generations. That's a big statement. You know? It's on my dream board. I look at it every day. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and honestly, it drives every decision I make because you have to stay focused. It's, it's not yeah. easy. I mean, yeah. and I can't change the world and I don't want to. Honestly, that's way too much work. <laughs> but I can change or possibly influence my circle of influence. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I'm after. Inspire by example. Yeah. Show the world that it's possible. You know, Actually, don't victimize, own yeah. up, find solutions, be creative, have the conversations. And let's get down to the root challenge here, not the perceptive challenge. Like, just yeah. let's actually talk about it. I mean, to and, paraphrase Gandhi, you're doing the right thing. Be the example, right? Be the thing someone points to and say, I want to be like that. Yeah. Well, they, they might not want to be like that. <laughs> you need examples. But it just shows that, you know, if you put your mind to something and you let go of the small stuff and you really kind of go where you, where you think you want to go, like you never know for sure because there's always so many things that are get thrown at you on a regular yeah. basis. But you do your best to keep on track. And then after decades, you look back and you say, wow, you know, I did my part. Yeah, I did what I could, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't go under with it. I didn't go sick with it. I had fun with it. So I guess ultimately to me is when, when I'm in that my deathbed and that's it, I don't want to regret anything. And to date, I don't regret anything I've done. I want to know to my core not in what people think, but to my core with, you know, honesty and, and genuinity that I as a being did what I think I could do to help generations or women or whatever that is. Yeah. I want to know that I left something behind. Yeah. So, yeah, footprints in the snow, I call that. What footprints are going to be left? Yeah. Behind you. But that only works in Canada. In the sand, maybe in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've, I've become Canadian by osmosis. That's a great segue into the end of the show here. Yeah. Because those are some really powerful words. We normally do some rapid-fire questions. Yeah. Adam, do you have one that's sort of bubbling on your... So the one I really want to ask you is, you know, if there's a, a young female who's sort of like interested in STEM and thinking about a career in engineering or building science, yeah, what would your advice be to them? Be ready to say the same thing for the next 20 years. Out of my way, I'm doing it. Is that? <laughs> I mean, sustainability, forget women in a minority setting. Sustainability yeah. is a really tough nut to crack. Oh, yes. When I signed my first contract, I was 19. Ooh. And my first employer in this field 
I had all these legal statements. And in there it said, okay, if you leave, you can't start to compete for five years. You can't do this. You can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. I was employed. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's, that's heavy. I mean, really? And he says, M, you're going to find out that what I'm teaching you today, you're going to be repeating in the next 20 years, word for word. Mm. And fair enough, he's right. I am still floored that what I learned in 2001 by my first mentor, I'm still presenting about today and people are still, Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know you mean. You know, be patient. In sustainability, building science as a one, be patient. That's what the turtle on my forearm is, patience. And that's why it's that big, because I'm not patient anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, so you got your master's degree in Austria, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So if you're addressing you know, some graduating students who are considering going on to get an advanced degree, either your master's or your PhD, and they're looking at an institute outside of their normal neighborhood, if you will. What do you say to them about taking that journey, that step, going abroad to get an education? What's your advice to them? Well, when I took my degree in 2010, I met the university dean in Whistler for the Olympics. They were delivering the Austria house to the mayor of Whistler for the Olympics. And so the Danube University was there showcasing the program. So I went all excited, like, oh my God, oh my God. And I just figured, okay, well, let me do a little bit of research here. So I went online and I tried to find similar programs at the time. And much later, I found out that Concordia University in Montreal had something close, but that was way after I actually did it. And my reasoning was just, you know, it all costs me about $50,000 no matter where I go. So why not go in a place where in 15 years I won't be expired? So I went to one of the world leaders and I took my degree over there because that's where we talk about comfort, you know, and and not just thermal, like glaring. So, you know, lighting comfort, thermal comfort, IAQ comfort, you know, we talk about and we bring the human piece and that's where I really loved it. Like doing the comfort calculation was like my favorite part of the course. I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. I get to pick how I'm going to dress and how I'm going to heat and how I'm going to cool and how I'm going to do all these things. It was awesome. We had to build models and understand how lux intensity affects your eyes and, you know, what the kind of lux per kind of surface, you know, massivity and the nerd in me just went. And I'm like, okay, so now I need to bring this back to Canada. And I guess that since I graduated in 2012 and only today in 2021-ish did people start seeing that value. So I guess I did the right thing because if I would have taken the program here in Canada or in America, I wouldn't know all these things today, which is what now people are looking at. So you did the right thing. I mean, I'd, I'd encourage anyone to think, certainly in their second degree, try and study abroad, right? Get out of your bubble. Oh, there was so much stuff and great wine. (laughs) Great wine. I learned what Sturm was and it's brilliant. (laughs) I had a blast. And yeah, it was, it was an amazing adventure being in a country where you can't speak French or English, really. 
learning German to a degree. I mean, I put yeah. my foot in my mouth a few times. It was funny. But ultimately what they've done and how they do the their line of thought, like the cultural difference I find is what yes. makes this the biggest driver. They build yeah. things to last over there. Whereas here we build them with a maintenance plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, I'm that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we want that continuous work. We want to continuously fix stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's the frontier <laughs> mentality in North America, right? Cheap build materials, put it up, push it down, change it, you know, maintain it. It's not but a long term. Think about everything. Yeah. I think about every sector. Yeah. Most of them are built, even the medical sector, uh, built yeah. on a maintenance plan. Nobody makes money on somebody that's cured. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're going down a dark rabbit hole there. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Right? Well, so, I mean, that's their culture here in North America. It's no, a little it bit is. more disposable. It's, I call it frontier culture, and it, it's real, right? It's a real thing. You know, resources are different here. Time spans are different, worldviews are different. That's why going and studying abroad is really important. I would argue that the UK and Europe, which aren't the same thing, by the way, are um, probably one generation ahead in their thinking on the built environment, I would say. And also, that was my... From the UK, yeah. It's just objectively, I've worked in 21 countries, you know, and I can tell you that is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my feeling as well. Yeah. When you look at the building codes in Austria and Germany... Mm-hmm. Comfort is code. Yes, well, every absolutely. program that design is built around comfort. Even the passive house piece, it's a Teddy or thermal energy density unit target, but ultimately the way they, they calculate their efficiencies and their heat recoveries is based on a comfort approach, not energy efficiency approach. Yep. I like that comfort approach versus energy. So I'm getting some good buzzwords off you here. Anyway, we're well, that's awesome. Yeah. Towards the end now. Well, I just want to thank you for your time and we will put in the show notes all your contact points. So expect a flood of young women in STEM to come and find you. Let's hope so. Yeah, I hope so as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's refreshing. Although I find that uh, <laughs> women in small doses are better. <laughs> If you have a room full of cats, it doesn't work out either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you need to find that balance, right? And I don't yeah, know that totally. it's a number thing. Because there's a different mindset. Plus, I, I love, love my, my women partners, but I mean, I'm not taking anything away from my male partners. Now, I'd love like, to see a reasonable right? split, a 40, 50% you need split both. would be perfect for this industry, right? Because you get that balance in there. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think that, I mean, it's just my experience in the workplace, like in a firm or, I find that if there's, I don't know if it's primitive or instinctive or what happens there, but if there's, you know, way fewer males, male genders, like guys, and they're surrounded by women or females, it's like the women start competing against each other. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I've seen that. And then if you get, the one woman and 25 guys, the guys don't necessarily compete against one each other to get the good graces of the no. woman. They kind of just want to test the minority to see if they're par. If I should be and once that's established, then we're good. Yeah. I find it's a very different dynamics. And 
that's right? That's my experience. Yeah. I'm not saying it's everyone's, but that's what my experience was. And I don't know that it's a number thing. I don't know that it's a 50-50 kind of yeah. number, male-female thing that we need to be looking at, but more of a balance between mindsets. And if you can have two females for five men and that's the, that's that's the magic yeah. formula, yeah. Yeah. then I think we should go with that rather than yeah. saying we need three of each and you're still not getting the optimal brain power. Yeah, I'm not forced prescribing numbers at all. I think there's a natural equilibrium for everything. We just don't know what it is, right? That's Yeah, I think yeah. targeting equilibrium is, but that's the hard piece. We have to try and... But and yeah, equilibrium yeah. is probably a better approach than prescriptive numbers. And you have to accept that it might not be fair or how you want it when you go for equilibrium. That's the problem, right? No, it but we can easily is. measure that, right? You can measure yeah. that with outcome. Yes. And success. Yeah. yeah. Right? It doesn't have to be a, a number. It could be the reach. It could be the influence. It could be, it could yeah. be a lot of metrics. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so listen, we, we're coming up on the hour. We'll wrap up now. So thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and, thanks, uh, thanks for having yeah. me. I'd like to get yeah. you back next year to talk about pressurizing houses and seeing how much they leak. You want me to talk about that now? No. No, we'll come, that, we'll get you back we'll for get, another episode. We'll get, yeah, okay. we'll get you back. Because oh, that's yeah, a subject sure. on itself, because that's fascinating. Because that's some so, objective Robert, science. So, Robert, I just want to put a caveat to how we met. Sure, yeah. Do you remember we were comparing Excel sheets? <laughs> oh, you nerds. We were sitting one next to each other. And <laughs> That's he, right. was, he was snooping on my screen. I was snooping on his screen. And then he asked me what I did for a living. And that's how we met. That's right. That's right. I remember we're that comparing now. Excel sheets. <laughs> <laughs> his are way more elaborate than mine, but I, I, you know, I got his attention. So. so it was like an Excel arms race. Was it? It, was like, it was. It was. Yeah, that's right. I remember that too. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. Their team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional, and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, and it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. 
That's a suite. Yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean that's a suite of moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Census Suite CEO, Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. All right, Adam, another excellent interview. We hear the same things repeatedly from women coming into this industry but it's not just advice that's good for women. It's a good advice for everybody, you know, but following your passions, you have to get in it for the right reasons and, and really believe in why you're doing it. I mean, that's not just good advice for women. That's good advice for everybody, you know? Yeah, I love that. I love, there were some nice things coming out there. I mean, we were talking primarily about residential and we definitely will get her back on to talk about building personalization testing. But yeah. I love the fact that she just didn't accept anything, right? So start off oh, as an inspector in the city of Quebec thinks, well, this sucks. I don't like living here. And at that point, most people would stop and just carry on, right? Yeah. Not her. She gets in the car, moves over, like essentially emigrated to another place. Yeah. You know, totally. Canada's vast. By the way, everyone's listening, it takes nine hours to fly one into Canada to the other. That's how big it is, right? It's yeah. the largest country in the world. So she moves halfway across the world, goes to a boat, starts again, reinvents herself. There's a life lesson there, right? You can reinvent yourself any old time you want. Yeah, totally. Yeah, love that, man. I love that. So, yeah, so one of my notes was, you know, when we were talking to her, and I've known Emily now for a number of years, and, you know, she is an adventurer, and she has no problem taking risks, and obviously demonstrated by her, her story. She made some really interesting comments about subsidies taking out the value of things. That Uh, was a great insight. Yeah, you picked up on that right away. I noticed that. Yeah. Just come in, Joel. They want to try and do the right thing, right? You want to affect a good change. The real arguments come in how to do that, right? Mm. Is it subsidy? Is it pushing up prices, letting the market solve it? There's always this tension between. But you never get a lot of discussion about why things don't work, right? You know, a new guy gets elected or a girl gets elected, and this is my way, we're going to do it. And there's never a post-mortem and say, well, did that work? Did it suck? Maybe we shouldn't repeat it. <laughs> no one has that conversation, do they? <laughs> yeah. Both of you started, you got on to uh, the discussion about embedded value. Yeah. Which I also thought was an interesting strategy. Yeah. There has yeah. to be a way to market housing, some housing, the way a Tesla is marketed as a high-end, high-quality product. because. Tesla starts as a super thing, it's an expensive thing for rich people, right? But as it becomes adopted, the price falls, right? So if you could perform this trick in the housing market and say, oh, there's a developer, we, we're doing these high-end things and they're, they're based on comfort and energy efficiency and net zero, they go into the market and people buy them and use them and then the benefits come out. It sort of matures the market, right? And it starts diffusing down the cost chain, cost graph. Yeah. That's the thing. I think there's a real gap in the market for a developer who wants to do some boutique development, but do it at that level, right? Solve for comfort, solve for energy, solve for net zero, but still be fashionable, gorgeous, and have all the things in it that you would need to have a nice life in that home, right? Yeah, totally. 
Just as a, as a sidebar discussion, I'm doing some research work for a project that I'm working on, on a business proposal. And it takes three days to build a Tesla. It takes less than 24 hours to pump out a Toyota Corolla. It takes under three months to build a Boeing 737 out of the plant in Washington. <laughs> it took less than two years to build the largest cruise ship now, Royal Caribbean, something of the seas. I can't remember what it was. And so as you know, let's just summarize here. Less than 24 hours to build a Toyota Corolla, less than three days to build a Tesla, less than three months to build a 747, less than two years to build the world's largest ship cruise liner. It takes two years to build a 30-story high-rise, and it takes two years to build a 1,700-square-foot home. That is, oh, dude, send me them stats and email. I'm going to put that out as a meme. That is everything you need to know about how much the building industry sucks. It is so backwards. And, you know, when you think about the Royal Caribbean ship, right? Yeah. The power plant to move the ship, the thermal electrical systems to keep it running, the plumb, it's, you know, the complexity is off the charts. The complexity is like off the charts. And, you know, the the ship itself can house 6,000 guests. There's a crew, get a load of this, there's a crew, 2,000 people on the crew, uh, making every 6,000 people happy, right? Running the ship, the cooks, all of that kind of stuff. 8,000 people can sit on that ship. Took them less than two years to build it. Right. And so it's just like, man, like what is wrong with property development that it takes us so long to do such archaic stuff, like making a building, you know? One of the problems is it's always local and there's no competition. Yeah. Brent, they put out all these proposals. 90% of all bids are won by two firms, LS Don and PCL. Now, in a free and open market, that would never happen. No. Someone someday is going to crack these markets wide open. It's why it's there to be cracked. But oh, it's just it's just like that's yeah, it's right there. It's the target, right? One of the last things I want to talk, uh, bring up, and both of you guys again jumped on this, and that was Emily. She said, you know, in Europe, it's built to last. Here in yes. North America, it's built with a maintenance program. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's correct. so true. That is so true. You know, and and thanks for that, Emily, because. There's no other way to, to summarize it. That's, that was probably one of the best ways to summarize the industry that we're in. Yeah. My God, you know, when I think about the properties that I've worked on, my own personal stuff, and it was all about reducing maintenance. I hate maintaining stuff. It goes back to controls too. By the way, for those that are listening, we're going to have a debate about the Internet of Things and controls coming up. Adam, you're going to arrange that for us. Yes, I am indeed. And that'll be really, really good. You know, but I don't want to have a relationship with, the shit around my house. Like I, no. I want to play my guitar. I want to go fishing. I want to go skiing. Those are the things that I want in my life. I don't want to be able to have to paint stuff and tighten stuff up and replace this and replace that. Like that just sucks the soul out of someone like me. I, just like, I agree. Uh, this is why I can only be 90% Canadian because I will never own a deck. Maintenance nightmare. A swimming pool. Maintenance nightmare. A hot tub. Maintenance nightmare. A barbecue. Yeah. Who wants to come around my house and eat half-cooked food? Nobody. (laughs) It's just, but people don't think like that, right? There's an educational aspect to this, I don't know, Uh, as a psychologist. But that was great. I really enjoyed speaking to her. I love people, but, you know, she didn't suffer from the sunk cost fallacy. She said, this sucks, I'm moving. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'll go to Austria and do my degree. Why not? 
Right? I, I love that. I love yeah. that. Like, who does that, right? Not very many people do that, but and that really is kind of a representation of Emily's core, who she is as yes. an individual, you know? Yeah. And, and she does that. You can see that, you know, she gets into a situation, she does an evaluation, she says, okay, this ain't working for me. I'm out of here and we're going to go. <laughs> and that is a common denominator. I get, we say that over and over again because we had yeah. a lot of really good guests on, yeah. but that is the common denominator. Yeah, Every is. one of them gets to a point where, the, and they, they get out and they say, you know what, this is my degree or this is where I started. I'm not happy. I'm not going to continue and be a miserable son of a bitch for the rest of my life. Yeah. I'm done. Let's move, you know, yeah. and do something different. Right. That's Damn a right. big thing. Yeah. Okay, mate. Listen, that was great. I'm uh, looking yeah. forward to seeing you next one, man. I'm loving this. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, Adam. All right, All man. Right. See ya. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.